Hello. It's very quiet today for a few reasons. One, definitely, the, I think the weather has deterred some people. Um, and I know that there's a lot of traffic today. But two, all the children um, are at the Australian Unity Nursing Home right now. And they're doing the Christmas play and um, Christmas carols for the elderly there. And so um, hopefully it's a blessing for them all. And then they'll come back and join us when they finish there. A few weeks ago, we, Roy and I, when I say we, um, attended our professional development that we have every year that the uh, ministerial department puts on for us. And it's a great time to catch up with our colleagues, um, but also a time for us to dig a little deeper into various topics. And the speakers that they had this year, um, the main speaker, Dr. Alan Walsh, um, he actually taught a class that I took, but he doesn't remember me because it was 15 years ago. <laughs> um, and I wasn't very memorable, I guess, as a student. But um, so he used to teach at Andrews University, but now he teaches at Avondale uh, in New South Wales. And um, he used to teach youth ministry, um, and I think he might still do that, but he was um, mainly now doing discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, and how to grow and develop your relationship with him. And so he did some really um, interesting and interactive workshops, um, some of which I'm going to be sharing the content today. But also Pastor Poroshka, um, who is our Associate Ministry Director, she shared a devotional thought um, that actually stuck with me as well. And the devotional thought was about root-bound plants. Now, I have the blackest thumb, as anyone who has ever been to my home knows, because I will kill a plant within a few weeks. Um, so if you give me a plant, I will do my best to keep it alive, but I'm very sorry, it will probably die. Um, but... I, I don't know much about plants, but I appreciate the amount of work and effort and, and knowledge um, and care that goes into keeping plants alive and well. So I found out about plants that get root-bound. And what happens is plants that um, are placed in containers, as the plant grows, the roots grow. Because um, apparently the roots grow pretty much as big as the branches do, like it kind of goes symmetrically. But of course, the roots don't have space to grow inside the small container. And what ends up happening is that the roots start wrapping around and around and around, and they get tangled up. And what happens is there's no more space for the soil because all the roots are taking up the space. And when even if you water that plant, the water doesn't get absorbed. And eventually, the plant kind of suffocates itself and dies. Now, here's the interesting thing about root-bound plants. If you take that plant out of the containers, you know, you can see all the roots there tangled up. And then you plant it in the ground where there's plenty of space and soil. Then guess what? The roots continue to grow in a circular pattern and continue to be tangled up. In fact, the roots that were, um, you know, root-bound, don't just straighten them out just because you transplant them into bigger bigger pots or um, or bigger land. In order for this plant to survive, the gardener has to actually cut the roots. Um, and there's different methods that they have prescribed for cutting them, you know. But you and and it, it's a it looks like a painful process, and you know it, it feels like you're hurting the plant, but actually you're helping the plant. This is the only way the plant can survive. Once you've cut you know, the root-boundedness, you know, and, and really get into um, 
the edge of the root where the bulb is, and then you kind of take your hand and you untangle the mess. Then you repot it in a bigger container or into the ground. That's when the roots can then start growing um, out and get the nutrients and the water that it needs from the soil. Changing the environment alone doesn't save the plant. The roots have to be sometimes drastically dealt with in order for that change to happen. What a powerful analogy, right? This, this you know, little tidbit of nature uh, really stuck with me as I thought about how we often want and wait for our circumstances to change. Oh, you know, when we're less busy, when work slows down, or when it's no longer this time of the year, then we'll have time for God. Then, then we'll, you know, slow down. Then we'll do some self-care. Then we'll do what we know we are supposed to prioritize. But the reality is that even if the circumstances change, right, we're going to continue to circle, making the same choices, perpetuating the same thought patterns, repeating the same mistakes, spiritually dehydrating ourselves, and wondering why our prayers don't bring us peace and why God seems silent. I read a quote this week that said, sometimes we get so busy rowing the boat, we don't take the time to stop and see where we're going or what we are becoming. I don't know if you resonate with that, but I surely do, right? We are so busy, right? And we're so just go, go, go all the time. And this week, oh, so hectic in our home. We just had a lot going on um, with work, but also... Um, my in-laws who are here, it's their last week, they're leaving tomorrow, so we're trying to, you know, whenever we have a free moment, you know, take them around, show them places, you know, the last minute fill it all in, and of course the kids are, you know, winding down their end of the year stuff, so, you know, I have to think of a, a gift for the piano teacher, and a gift for the rock climbing teacher, and gift for their homeroom teachers, and, you know, all that stuff, end of the year things. All the Christmas parties, tomorrow Joshua has two birthday parties, and it just, it's, you just have to, you know, so much to juggle. But we get so busy doing life that we don't take the time to stop and see why are we so busy? What, what are we busy for, right? What are we actually trying to achieve? Like that root-bound plant, could it be that we are just circling and circling and, and sucking out all the opportunities for us to actually absorb spiritual content so that when we go to the Bible, right, and we go to pray, we don't actually absorb anything because we haven't changed those roots, right? We haven't changed that pattern. To truly grow, to truly mature in our inner beings, to truly feel spiritually hydrated, sometimes we need to make those intentional and even painful processes. At PD, they made us do this thing called perspective check-in. And at first, we're all like rolling our eyes, like, oh, we're not going to do this. But actually, it helped us remember and solidify the information. So I'm going to try that today. So we're going to have a quick perspective check-in, one minute. I want you to turn to someone next to you. And if no one's sitting next to you, you move around, find someone. And I want you to share with that person what you've heard so far and your response to it so far. Okay, so just take one minute, share with each other, and take turns, and then we'll resume. So perspective check, share with each other. What did you just hear? What and, and uh, what's your response to it so far? And if you're watching or listening alone at home, you can speak out loud to the screen. What have you heard so far? And what are your thoughts about what has been shared so far?
swap with the other person and give the other person a chance to share what did they hear and what is their response so far, the reactions, thoughts. Okay, so if we don't want to be root-bound, right, we want to be able to absorb the spiritual nutrients. We want to be able to, when we have prayer, when we have Bible study, when we go to church, when we interact, you know, with other Christians, we want to be actually be able to, to glean from it and not just go back and be as dry and empty as before. So then how do we experience that growth? So like I shared, sometimes... It involves intentional and even painful processes. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 that says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of, eyes of him to whom we must give account. Like I said, the gardener is trying to help the plant, right? With with the with the shears and the knife. It's not trying to hurt in order to, you know, because the gardener enjoys hurting the plant. In fact, I'm sure the gardener feels a lot of pain cutting the roots and, you know, wondering if if this plant is going to survive. And so, while it sounds scary to think of God with through his word penetrating and, and dividing our attitudes and our um, and our thoughts and, and uncovering and laying bare, right? That sounds scary and unpleasant, but it's actually his way of actually trying to begin the healing process. But here's the problem. If we think that the gardener is trying to hurt us or enjoys watching us in pain, right, then it's actually going to be very difficult because we're not just a plant, right? We have agency for us to then submit ourselves to that process. But however, if we understand that the gardener is trying to help us, is trying to save us, and we accept the cutting and the uncovering while unpleasant is actually how the healing begins, then that's when we can experience the power, the transformative power of being in God's presence, of reading the word, of being in prayer. Notice this next part of the passage. Therefore, right, because God is doing this for our sake, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, if we are scared of the painful process or if we're scared of the uncovering process, then, yeah, we don't want to go anywhere near God, right? But if we understand, if we want true healing, we want true growth, right? And, and we believe that God is on our, on our side, that Jesus is our high priest, that he empathizes with us, that he has our best interest at heart. Then we can approach him with confidence, right? Then we can hold firmly to the faith 
That that's the process of going and saying, you know what? I actually believe that something good is going to happen when I come into your presence, that you are going to help me. Our understanding of the fact that God is on our side completely changes our experience with him. This is actually the first key to meaningful prayer. Changing, updating, refining our picture of God. Let me share an illustration. So this is an illustration that Dr. Walsh did at our PD. He put three chairs up. I'm not, I, just, I just have the two chairs here and just something in the middle. And he said to us, the first chair represents what we do for God. Okay? So think about all the things you do for God. First chair represents all the things that we do for God. Chair number two is on this side. It represents all the ways we love God. It represents how we love God, right? How much we love God. The ways that we show that we love God. So chair one is what you do for God. Chair two is how much you love God. Which chair do you operate from? Just think about it for a moment. Chair one, all the things you do for God. Chair two, all the ways you love God. All the ways you love him, how much you love him. I don't know about you, but most people operate from chair number one. And the thing is, it's possible to work really hard for someone you don't like. It's possible to work your whole life for someone you don't like. We may do a lot for God, but how much do we actually love him? So if you're wondering, well, what's the thing in the middle, right? So for Dr. Alan Walsh, it was a third chair for me. It's this thing in the middle. There's a stool here. What does the stool represent? Number one is what we do for God. Number two is how we love God. And the stool, number three, is what impacts us with number two. Stool number two, uh, three, sorry, is our picture of God, our picture of God. How we view God impacts how we love God. This chair number three or stool number three is our understanding of who God is. And if there's a part of us that believes that God is unfair or arbitrary or cruel or distant, it's really hard to love him. It's really hard to trust him. And guess what? It's really hard to pray to someone you don't trust. If your prayer life is meaningless and mundane, could it be that your picture of God needs to be updated? Is he a force to be appeased, a power to be harnessed, an idea to be dismissed? Or is he God, the creator of the universe, infinitely bigger and more powerful than you could ever imagine? Is he a religious figure from your parents' upbringing, or is he your personal savior? Is he a frightening judge, or is he your best friend? Your picture of God is going to determine how much you love God. And chair number one, which is what you do for God, 
You can do that really well. In fact, everyone else might look at you think, and think, wow, you do so much for God. You must love God. But actually, you might be doing a whole lot for God, but you don't love Him at all. Only you know how much you love God. And that's based on your picture of God. Your picture of God will determine the meaning of your prayer life because you cannot trust someone you don't like. And you cannot trust someone and open up yourself to someone that you have a bad opinion of. And so your prayer life will have absolutely no meaning for you because you're always holding back, right? So how do we change our picture of God? We, there's a few ways that we do this. Like we just read in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is what's going to be that, that knife that's going to cut into the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts. And so that's why we read the Bible. That's why we study the Bible, to, to find a picture of God that is clear for us. But we also listen to the stories of others, right? We read about, we learn about um, the testimonies of other people who have experienced God in a powerful way, right? Maybe, maybe they're people who are famous, but maybe they're pe- ordinary people who are in our lives that God has placed in our path. Maybe they're family members, maybe they're friends, maybe they're our partners, maybe they're um, our children. Sometimes, you know, Micah is now developing as, 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 a, um, as a, his own spiritual person, right? He has his mind now. And the other day, we were um, driving in Phillip Island. We showed our in-laws penguins, which were so cute. We loved it. And we're driving back. We're all in a good mood, and the kids were singing Christmas songs in the car, and then um, they were singing Christmas carols, and then and then um, they started singing Santa Claus is coming to town. And then all of a sudden, Mike stopped singing, and he turned to me and said, Mom, is it actually disrespectful to Jesus that we're singing about Santa Claus? Because Christmas is actually not about Santa Claus at all. Do you think it's disrespectful to Jesus? And I was like, I was singing along, like, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. And I was like, oh, you know what, Micah, like, I haven't really thought about it. Um, and so we had a little dialogue about that, right? Like, there he is. He's becoming his own spiritual person, right? And so the Word of God helps us figure out um, right and wrong, right? It gives us a picture of God that, that we begin to form because of our study and our um, interactions with the Word, and our interactions with other people who are interacting with the word. And they're seeing a picture of God that maybe we haven't seen before. And so other people are refining our picture of God, right? Other people are helping us see a picture of God because of what's happening in their lives. But also, when we think about our own lives, how God has interacted with us in our past, how he interacts with us in our present, those things also help us to remember who God is. And so there's many ways that we can refine and update our picture of God. And it's such an important step to being able to then have meaningful prayer. All right, time for a perspective check. So for those of you who just walked in, we're doing this thing called perspective check where you turn to the person next to you and you share with them, what have you heard so far? How did you understand it? Okay? Um, and, And then swap and then let the other person share. So quick time for a perspective check. Okay, swap, let the other person share. What did they understand from what was just shared? So if we want to change and update our picture of God, right? Because we're not having a good prayer experience because we don't really trust God. We don't really, you know, think he's um, powerful enough 
or fair or cares about what I'm saying, right? If you have any of those thoughts in your head, then yeah, of course your prayer isn't going to go anywhere in the sense of, you know, your heart is already blocked to anything that God wants to do through you and for you because you don't actually have faith that he's listening or that he cares or that he can do anything about it, right? So then how do we update that picture? Well, that's where we have to go find out, okay, well, is God really fair? Does God really care about me? And that's why the Bible study and, 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 the, and looking at the stories and really reflecting is so important. That's the first key. Second key for meaningful prayer is then acknowledging and focusing on the picture of God through what we call praise. Now, praise is very different from thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is when we thank God specifically for what he has done for us, right? We thank God for um, answers to prayers. We thank God for our health. We thank God for our family and friends, for food, right? That's something that we often thank God for. But praise is acknowledging God for who he is, and it leads to worship. So here's some, here are some examples of praise in the Bible. And I'm actually not going to quote Psalm at all. Like the whole book of Psalms has so much praise. But here are so many other examples of praise throughout the Bible. Exodus 15 verse 11. Um, Miriam is singing after God has delivered them from the, the Egyptians. And she sings, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 3 and 4. Here's an exclamation of praise. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. This is Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 5 and 6. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. You alone, alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And here's a few New Testament examples. This is Paul speaking, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And here's Peter writing to the Christians in the Roman Empire. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So praise sounds perhaps like this. I praise you, God, because you are so powerful, because you are the creator of the universe, and yet you're a personal God. I praise you because you're a God of compassion, a God of comfort. You're merciful. You give life and hope. I praise you, God, because you're holy, because you're the king of glory, because you're wise. Some people recommend doing a praise through the alphabet to think of words that describe God from A to Z. 
So you start and you think, hey, what's a word that describes God, right? Almighty, awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, Rabbi, benevolent, bright, beautiful, see, creator, etc. And so the idea is that you're praising God and all his attributes. And here's the beauty of why we do this. One, because he deserves our praise and worship. But also, when we do this, right, when we praise God, we acknowledge who he is, we're actually opening up our hearts and minds to receive, then, what he's willing to give to us. Because think about it. If you're praising God for his power, then when you're about to ask God for things, you have greater faith that he can deliver. Or when we're pra- or you're praising God because he's merciful, then you have greater confidence that he actually cares about what you're praying about. It changes our attitude from one of hopelessness to one of faith. From one of, you know, here I go again, to one of worship. Praise helps us to believe that God is worthy, that he is able, and that he does care. And the praise tunes our hearts to your partner. What have you heard so far, and what are your thoughts? And swap. So let's review. What's the first key to meaningful prayer? Refine our picture of God. And our second key to meaningful prayer is praise. Our third, can I get my clicker back, please, James? Thank you. Um, The third key to meaningful prayer is to actually tell God how you're feeling. Now, this sounds like, oh, yeah, we do that. No, we actually often don't. A lot of times when we pray, we say a lot of thank yous and please, right? For example, we might say, thank you, God, for bringing us safely here. Thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you that, um, you know, even though it's raining outside, we have shelter here. Thank you that the kids are having their, you know, retirement center outreach today. Please help them to do a good job. Please help us to have a good week. Please help us to, you know our requests, our, I mean, our prayer is all thank yous and requests. Now imagine if you have a friend or a partner or, you know, someone in your life and all they ever said to you, to you was thank yous and please. If Will said to, you know, Eliza, thank you for um, lunch today. Thank you for, you know, uh, coming with me to church. Can you please drive on the way out? And can you make dinner tonight? And um, tomorrow, can you take me to this other place? And, oh, by the way, thank you for doing that. Okay. She might be like, okay. But what if that's all he ever said to her was thank you and, and then please do this? You're not going to have intimacy. That's not a personal relationship. That's actually a very formal relationship. That's kind of the relationship you have with your boss, right? Your boss says, do this. And then thank you, maybe, right? Or with your colleagues, you might say, hey, help me with this. Oh, and then thank you. But you're actually not sharing about your personal life at all or how you're feeling or nothing. That's not a true relationship. Well, it's it's not intimate relationship. But that's how we treat prayer with God. 
And then we wonder why it doesn't mean anything. Well, because you're actually not talking to God and sharing what you're actually feeling and thinking about. And, you know, if you actually have to, uh, and Dr. Alan Walsh did this challenge, and you later on when we do, um, we go through our thing, we'll do it as well. And the challenge is try to pray without saying any thank yous or requests. It's actually really difficult, right? We're there with the professional development. There's 60 pastors in the room, and we're all like struggling. Um, like we were doing some uh, communal prayer, and our minister director was praying, and he was like about to pray for the food, and he was like, oh, like, I don't know. And he ended up saying, we're happy that we're about to eat, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but what it does is it actually changes. We're so used to just praying with thank yous and requests. But to have truly meaningful prayer, we need to actually share our feelings and talk to God like a friend. Let me give you an example. I printed double-sided today and it's messing me up. All right, let me give you an example. Prayer A, prayer A sounds like this. Real scenario. Dear God, please help me recover the data from my laptop. You all know it broke last week. Please help the insurance claim to pay for the $990 data recovery. That's not even guaranteed. Please help me to get everything fixed soon because it's been shipped off to Sydney to the experts and they don't know how long it's going to take. Thank you for listening to my prayer. Okay, that's prayer A. I don't know about you, but I leave that prayer still feeling really worried about my laptop and my data and the money, right? Here's prayer B, real prayer. Father God, I'm really worried about the data that was on my laptop, especially the latest draft of my book that I've been working on. What if they can't recover the data? Not only am I worried about the data, I'm really frustrated with myself that I didn't back it up. Right? I should have just backed it up, God. I don't know why I didn't, and I'm so mad at myself that I didn't. It's costing me time because I had to go into the city to drop it off. It's costing me money. Money that, you know, we, we, we don't have a whole lot of at the moment because we're, we're, we've been um, spending it for different things. An effort to try to recover the data. And if only I backed it up, I could have avoided all this. I'm so disappointed with myself. Roy's been telling me that it's okay, we can afford it, and it's worth it. The, the, the book and everything that's on it, it's worth it, so it's okay. Just pay the money, we'll get it back. But I can't help wondering, is it worth it? Is my book really worth it? What if it's not good enough? And even though, why am I getting emotional? Because I'm sharing real feelings, right? These are, these are real feelings. And it's such a different prayer because the prayer area was about data recovery, right? Time, money. But once I actually start sharing my feelings and thoughts, it actually comes out that, oh man, I actually don't like making mistakes. Did you hear that? I, I am so angry with myself that I didn't back it up. Yes, I'm worried about the time and the, and the money, and so there, there is a bit of fear about, you know, the finance, finances bit there. But it's really, I hate making mistakes. There's something about making mistakes I really don't like, right? I'm also feeling really insecure about my book. The, the laptop breaking down is not the actual problem. The actual problem, I, and I only realize this as I share my feelings and thoughts with God, is that I desire perfection in myself and I'm scared of 
whether my book is, is going to be actually helpful, whether it's going to be worth it, all this extra effort and expenses. So as I'm telling God these things, and this is a real prayer that I pray this week, as I'm sharing, that's when I realize, ah, oh, see, that's, that's the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God dividing the attitudes and the thoughts of my heart and showing me what I'm actually really upset about and worried about and anxious about. And that's when the healing can begin because God can minister to those feelings. And in fact, as I prayed those thoughts and as I realized, oh, actually, these are the things I'm actually really battling with. It's not the laptop. It's not the data. It's my sense of worthiness and my insecurities about, you know, my ministry or my book or my own self because I made this mistake, right? And so then I feel God convicting me of my need for God to heal me in those areas of my life. So rather than it being about the data or the book or the laptop, it becomes God help me to have faith that you have a purpose for this book. You gave me this opportunity, and so you're going to, not because of my, you know, cleverness or writing abilities, but because you have a plan for this book, it's going to work out. And you have provided for me financially in the past so many times, and so help me believe that you can sustain us into the future. And help me to remember that it's okay to make mistakes that it doesn't make me any less valuable in your sight. And give me peace to accept whatever outcome happens. And when I did prayer B, right, like this, at the end, guess what? I actually felt peace. That if the data doesn't come back, that's okay. It's going to work. It's going to be okay, right? It's going to be all right, whatever the outcome may be. And that kind of prayer is transformative. Do you see the difference? Perspective check time. Turn to your partner. What have you heard so far? And what thoughts and feelings are you having about it? Swap with the other person. So the three keys to meaningful prayer are actually quite simple. It's basically saying when you get to know God and you get to like him, you get to trust him, then you open up to him and he becomes a friend. And then it becomes less about what he can do for us and more about the incredible healing power of feeling hurt, of knowing that we are in God's presence. And that's actually enough. The miracles and the answers to prayers, they're bonuses. And they're fantastic. But really, the prayer is about being in the presence of God. Telling him what we're thinking and feeling. And then feeling heard, feeling understood, feeling that God has our backs. If we think that prayer is about the requests, then we feel awkward about asking for things. Because doesn't God already know? And I'm praying about this again. And I kind of don't feel like praying about it again, right? Our prayer life quickly becomes something that doesn't bring us any meaning and that we don't enjoy when we think that the prayer is about the requests. Also, when we think that the prayer is about the requests, when we don't get what we asked for, then we get really disappointed and we get bitter. And then we think God doesn't really care about us. And then once again, our prayers don't become meaningful. And then we don't get anything out of the spiritual stuff that we do because our roots 
are circling around and around. But when we understand that the real purpose of prayer is sharing our hearts with God, opening our minds to him, giving God space to be with us in our lives, then we experience the real power of prayer, which is intimacy with God. And that time is never wasted. Think about a friend that you have. You don't have to do anything productive with that friend to have a good time, right? Sometimes just wasting time together is, is the best part. When, when that relationship, right, with that person, just being with them is what makes you happy. And being with them is actually what transforms you and grows your relationship. You don't, they don't have to do you favors in order for that person to be your friend. And the thing is that God, when we are spending time with him, because he is such a, you know, think, think about like the most influential person in your life. Why are they influential? Often it's because we care about them the most, right? We give them space and leeway to influence us. When we realize that spending time with God through prayer is, is, is spending time in his presence and we're opening up our hearts and our minds and our lives so that he can influence, influence us, that's when prayer can really have that impact. Because God is wise and kind and a great listener and powerful, that when we spend time in his presence, it actually does something to us. Day by day, little by little, we get new life, new purpose, and peace when we spend time with God. Remember in the beginning I shared about that root-bound plant. You can fake it for a long time. Green leaves on top, right? You might even have some fruit on the branches. But those roots that no one else can see, are they really getting and, and absorbing the spiritual nutrients are they really reaching out, right, and, and giving you life and purpose and peace? Or are they circling around? Only you know. And only you have the power to change that by actually going and spending that secret time with God. Where you go to him, believing the picture of God as he has presented in scripture, as he has presented in your life and through the lives of those you love. Going to him with praise, acknowledging him for who he is, and then sharing your true feelings and thoughts as you do that. Amazing things can happen in your heart. Your circumstances might not change immediately, but you will change, and that changes everything. There's a quote that's quite powerful. It says, the greatest thing we have to offer others is not our education. It's not how clever we are. There's a lot of clever people in the world. And a lot of them don't do any good. The greatest thing we have to offer others is not our education. It is not our good ideas. You might have brilliant ideas, and I'm sure they'll, they can do some good. But that's not the greatest thing we can offer. It isn't even our gifts and abilities. Our gifts and abilities, very helpful. Great gift to the world, but not the greatest. The greatest thing we have to offer others is the fruit of the time we have spent with the Savior. The utterly unique and unparalleled thing that happens to us 
when we are simply in his presence. The greatest gift we can give our loved ones is the fruit of the time we have spent with God. Roy's not here because he's with the kids at the, at the nursing home, so I'm going to tell you about Roy, <laughs> something. You know, when we first got together, people who didn't know Roy were puzzled because I was, on paper, very different from Roy, on paper. For example, I had, and I don't, I'm not trying to brag, I'm just trying to tell you what other people were thinking at the time. Um, you know, there I was, valedictorian in my high school, went to Princeton, top university in the, you know, at the time, got a full scholarship, go do my master of divinity. I was very accomplished. So, you know, quote, worldly, you know, worldly way. I was the senior pastor of the, of the church at the Andrews Korean Church. And in the circle that I was in at the time, I was pretty well known and pretty well respected. And, you know, people knew who I was. And there was this guy named Roy, who nobody knew, right? Because he had been in Australia, he had been in India, he had been in Guam, he had been a missionary for like seven years. Nobody knew who he was, came from nowhere. And had no money, because <laughs> he had been a missionary for many years, right? And he had no education, because he spent seven years um, being a missionary, he hadn't done his uni work yet. So he was 28 years old, finishing his college degree. And there I was, I finished my master's degree, right? And in Korean culture, that kind of stuff matters. And so, like, the, I'm talking about the Korean people who are, like, judging based on our, our things. And also, you know, his mother had passed away when he was little. And for some reason, Korean people think, like, that's a defect of your, your character if you have lost a parent. It's like, it doesn't make sense. But this is just how some, you know, people think, right? Um, and so when, you know, we began our relationship, people were... Some people, like I said, the people who had very narrow minds and couldn't, they were like, why, you know, this person? And, and plus, like, where is he going? Like, what's his future, et cetera, et cetera. And that's because they didn't know Roy, right? And, um, you know, I, when I was young, I remember, like, I had made a list of what I wanted in a future partner, <laughs> because I'm type A, and that's what I do. I make lists. So I had this long list of what I was looking for in a partner. I wanted a certain height. I wanted, you know, someone who did his daily devotions. I wanted so like, I had a very long list of very specific things I, want, I wanted in my future partner, right? And, um, you know, yes, Roy met some of them, not all of them, but there's one thing that Roy did that when I realized that about him, I was like, all those things? Doesn't matter. And because he's not here, I'll tell you. And I doubt he'll watch this live stream <laughs> later because he's too busy. Roy, I had never met, you know, even though I was like 28 and had been a pastor, I met many pastors, met many Christians in my whole life, and I've dated other Christian guys in my life. I'd never met a man who, when he goes to pray to God, comes back changed, comes back transformed. And what I mean is, you know, let's say he's upset about something. Let's say we had an argument. Then off he would go, you know, not immediately, but when he was ready, to go pray. An hour, however long it takes. He often would go and walk. Sometimes he'll pray in the study and I see him fall asleep and then he wakes up and prays again, right? And after that prayer, every time, 
he comes back and he is a different person. The Roy that I knew from when we first got married to the Roy who he is now, very different person. Roy didn't know how to emotionally connect back then. Didn't know how to, you know, he did a lot for me, but he didn't know how to share himself with me, to make himself vulnerable, to tell me how he felt, right? He didn't, he didn't even know how he felt always because he was a guy's guy, had an older brother and a dad because his mom passed away when he was 14, and, he, and they didn't talk about their feelings at all, you know? So they grew up, like, just doing things for each other. That's how they showed love, right? And so when we were in a relationship, I grew up with, with like, my mom, my sister, and my dad, and we talk about everything. We share our feelings all the time. And so, like, we just, it was, it, at first, we just couldn't understand each other. But every time Roy would go and pray and he would come back, he would understand himself, he would understand me, he would understand our relationship better, and he was able to express himself. And I saw that transformation every single time. So I knew this is someone that even though he's not perfect now, right, doesn't matter. Well, not, neither, I mean, I'm not perfect either, so of course that's unrealistic. But also, this is someone who I know will submit himself to God and allow God to transform him into the kind of man that I've always wanted. And he has. The greatest gift we can give our partners, our friends, our children, is the fruit of the time we spend with God. Because then we come out with the fruit of the spirit of gentleness and peace and kindness and all those things that we cannot manufacture from ourselves. Trust me, I've tried, right? I tried to be more patient with the kids, but nothing will actually help me be patient with the kids except for when I actually go to God and just vent all my feelings of frustration to him. And then he convicts me once again. Hey, I am so patient with you. And he fills me with that love and patience to be able to go and minister to my children. The greatest gift that we can offer others is our time with God. Not only will it transform us, not only will it transform our families and our communities, it can even change the world. It has happened before. When followers of God prayed, history changed. It can happen again. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I long for healing, don't you? Healing for ourselves, for our families, for our, our, our community, for the world, and for our land. And, and we can experience this kind of healing when we actually pray to God with all of our hearts open and with praise and with the right picture of God. I would like you to scan this QR code. And if the weather was nice, I would say go out to the park, but (laughs) I think it's still raining. So just spread out amongst yourselves. And I would like you to spend... Um, 20 minutes, so the first five minutes reflecting on the verse, First Peter 5, 6, and 7, all of that is uh, listed on the website. Five minutes praising God, and then 10 minutes just talking to God without saying thank yous or please. No requests, no thank yous, just tell him exactly what's on your mind and how you're feeling. 
And then we'll come back into the fellowship hall in exactly 20 minutes, and we will wrap up um, with sharing how that experience went. Join me in prayer. Father God, you are an awesome God who created the universe, and yet you care about each and every single one of us. There's no one like you who knows us fully and yet loves us completely. Lord, we are tired and broken and empty. We are thirsty for peace. We hunger for righteousness. We long for clarity and purpose for our lives. We want to know you and the power of your presence and resurrection. We long for spiritual revival and peace that passes all understanding. Help us to be honest and humble as we seek you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.